Welcome back to another edition of the Wits Up podcast. It is fantastic to see all of your friendly faces out there. Uh, have you seen that we're starting to see glimpses of a couple of races? Now, mind you, they generally tend to be grassroots type of events, uh, but it's great to see a few triathletes out there managing to tow a start line. We caught up with four different pro triathletes who took part at the Rainbow Beach Triathlon in Queensland, Australia, uh, just the other weekend. And I think it's fair to say that they fell in love with the sport all over again. Uh, But interesting, it was uh, quite a few long-distance triathletes who were racing over the sprint distance. So I'm sure they pulled up pretty sore Uh, from that but great greatness to see some racing return and we've got more coming up in the following weeks as well so stay tuned uh, for all of those races in real life away from a computer screen it's amazing Uh, okay today we are chatting to amy dixon who is a para triathlete and my goodness this woman i feel like she has had about five different lives within her own life and I've got to be honest, she had me a bit flawed. There were quite a few moments throughout our chat where I just, I didn't know what to say. Uh, Really interesting insights. Uh, What an incredible human. I really enjoyed this discussion, which seems a bit weird considering some of the content, but um, Amy's super open and lovely and insightful and I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did. Uh, before we get started, one of our mates, Leslie, who is one of our Wits Up patrons, has got something to tell you. Hi, I'm Leslie, and I've been a Wits Up patron since it launched. I signed up because I've been a fan and followed a Wits Up for the past five or so years, and I know just how hard the Wits Up team work to bring us such great content. So to me, this was a great way to give back and help keep Wits Up going in the future. My favourite thing from What's Up is the podcast. Steph has a great knack for putting athletes completely at ease and really pulling out their personalities. Something that not every podcast host manages to do. So if, like me, you really enjoy the podcasts, articles, features and everything else that What's Up has to offer, then I encourage you to join me in signing up to be a patron member. You can do this by going to patreon.com slash or click the link in the show notes. Amy Dixon, welcome to the Wits Up podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> well, we were going to try and see if we could catch up. Was it early earlier this year in Devonport? Is that right? That is correct. Yes. Uh, yes, but I couldn't get there. And then essentially the world shut down. So there was no chance of us meeting <laughs> face to face. <laughs> Next February, hopefully. That's right. <laughs> yep. That's important. And so I'm originally from Tassie, and for those people who out there who don't know, Devonport is uh, in the northern part of Tassie, and I think if I don't turn up to any triathlon race in Tassie, my mum will kill me. So I, I definitely need to make it there next year. <laughs> yes, you do. It's a great race. Oh, yeah? You like it? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. It was it was honestly one of, the, even though the course didn't seem like it was going to be hard, it ended up being one of the hardest races of my entire life. <laughs> really? Yeah, it was. It was a very challenging day. Super choppy seas. Um, 
the tether that I have that connects me to my guide came off five times in the swim because we were getting <gasps> so far apart. So, and you get disqualified if you're more than one and a half meters from your guide. So like we're clamoring to try to stick together somehow <laughs> while holding onto a rope and uh, dangling from our leg. And then um, finally get out of the swim and it was uh, 40 mile an hour winds on the bike course. It was sort of like Kona. <laughs> oh, and so I was like, wow. And so we had pretty deep wheels. So we're getting blown sideways like a tractor trailer or like a, you know, a big, a big truck uh, on the road. And we saw a bunch of crashes happen in front of us on other tandems. So that was terrifying to behold. And, uh, and then the run came down to me uh, having to out sprint a 22 year old and I'm, I'm not 22. <laughs> 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 but I did, but it was really painful. So yeah, but it was a good race. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, okay. So I, I've got a few questions already about this race, um, <laughs> which is weird because normally we don't talk too much about triathlon, right, as right, you know, right. yes. podcast. but um, so for those who are listening, um, Amy is, and if I stuff up anything, please make sure you correct me because I'm still learning about all the terminology, but I think I've got it. Okay. Um, you, you, you're a paratriathlete, um, mm-hmm. in the blind division, but there, are there different divisions in the blind category? There are, there's three different levels of visual impairment. So B1 oh. is considered totally blind or very little light perception. Maybe you could see shapes and colors. B2 is they can see shapes and colors, but probably can't read. Um, and then B3 is tunnel vision, like what I have. So I have the ability to... Oh nice faces, but it's like looking through a straw. So there you go. Whoa. Yeah. So, and then based on whether you're B1, B2 or B3, you actually get handicapped at the start of the race. So the B1 athletes get a three minute and 48 second head start on me. So I have to stand on the swim pontoon while they swim away and then get a, and I basically have to time trial and go catch them. So it's, it's like a pursuit race on the track <laughs> for, for those who follow the velodrome. So, okay, so essentially you're all fighting for the same title, uh, right. but you're handicapped yes. as in the timing. Ah. Yeah. So is it offensive for me to say blind or should I be saying visually impaired? Blind or visually impaired, they both work. Absolutely. They're both equal. Some some people okay. prefer visually impaired. I, I For me, blind is blind, so it's fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, now, quick one. Are you tapping on your desk when you chat? Oh, yeah, I, I talk with my hands, don't I? <laughs> right. You do. I should have been Italian. Okay. I, 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 will try, I will do my best to put them at my sides. <laughs> and and feel free to tell me off as well because I no, no. Uh, also I, I, chat I, with my hands. I'm like, oh, gosh, yeah, I do do that, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> Mate, I'm sitting here <laughs> clicking a pen and then I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, standard. Um, yes. Okay, so visually impaired in the B3. Yep. B3, wasn't it? Yep. Um, Now, you get disqualified if you are too far away from your guide. To me, (laughs) it's kind of a massive disadvantage to be too far away from your guide. That's pretty harsh. It's not helpful. (laughs) Unless you're a way faster swimmer than she is, then then maybe it's helpful, but you shouldn't have that person as your guide. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, the idea is that everyone has to be tethered at the same time. And that's happened to me a few times where the tethers come loose and, and it just happens sometimes either you lose weight or you, you know, as the season, ah. your leg gets a little thinner. So the tether's not staying on your inner thigh as well, or, or you have a super choppy swim where it's an elastic bungee cord essentially. And so you get, just get, it gets yanked off of your leg if you hit a, if you both hit a wave wrong. So yeah, that's what happened. 
So, did you say it's attached um, on your thigh? Yes, it's a, just a, basically a loop. It's a, a, a it's allowed to be zero point eight meters long, and there's a loop at either end that goes around our thigh, and so we're connected there. Wow. Mm-hmm. So. And from what I understand, um, I mean, I've only spoken to a few visually impaired triathletes, um, but what they've explained to me that sometimes it can be hard to find guides and your guide might change throughout training and different races. Is that the same with you? Yes, it's extremely challenging. It's I call it a first world problem. The faster I get, the harder it is to find guides because yeah. uh, you have to have somebody that's at least, at least five to seven five to 10% faster than you are because they have to be able to communicate verbally the entire race. So they can't be completely on because they have to be able to help you navigate the course. They have to be able to call out when the buoy's coming up. Um, If they see a hole in a bunch of swimmers that they want to go through, she'll say right or left or sprint or hold um, are the commands that we generally get in the swim from our guides. And then same thing on the run, you know, like she has to be able to say, okay, you know, you're going out too fast or whatever. Let's, let's dial it back. Or, uh, the Italians 200 meters up the road, let's close the gap, you know, things like that. So, so she's kind of communicating. Yeah. But even, yeah, like the entire, so it's not even, um, necessarily tactics. It's, it's even, oh, bump ahead, uh, on the bike, um, taking a drink or, you know, all that kind of stuff as well. Yep. So if I want to take a drink on the back of the bike, I have to say drinking and she'll say no, because it might be an obstacle coming up or a a hard turn or something like that, where I need both hands in the drops to get ready for that. Wow. Yeah. So you, you, so, I mean, to me, that seems like it's a pretty special relationship, but when you can't, um, I guess, train, always train and always race with the same person, that's like, you know, that's diving in the deep end in terms of trusting someone, right? It truly is. I don't know if you saw the article, Triathlete Magazine did one about how I met my guide, Kirsten, who I'm currently racing with uh, for the past two or three seasons now, I guess. Well, if we had a season this year, it would have been three seasons. Um, But Cliff Notes version is that I was uh, training with a retired or recently retired Ironman pro, Emily Cox. And so she was training with me and getting ready to go to Yokohama, Japan. And the rules are is that the person guiding you cannot have raced ITU races as a professional for 12 months prior. And she, but, you know, we were thinking sprint and Olympic distance, you know, the, the, the world series, you know, the W sure. series. Well, she had raced long course world championships as like her final hurrah for fun and of it and so we found this out that that made her ineligible about a week before i was supposed to leave for japan and i had no backup my backup breast fracture (laughs) so i was like oh crap so i put literally put on apb on facebook saying okay here's my swim bike run paces who can do this five percent faster (laughs) i can go to japan in six days (laughs) and so through a mutual friend i got introduced to kirsten sass and we had never met. We had never been on a bike together. And the tandem bike is not an easy thing to learn. She had, <laughs> she had raced one race with a blind athlete in Florida the year prior. Uh, so that was her one and done experience on a tandem. And it was a very easy, big rectangular, you know, time trialing kind of course with only a couple turns. Um, so not, you know, not that big of a deal. But I also knew that she was a three-time uh, USA triathlete, USA triathlon athlete of the year. She had won Kona three times uh, as an age grouper. 
She had seven uh, ITU age group world titles to her name and like every distance possible. I was like, okay, she's clearly overqualified. And she had loved to ride race bikes and did crit racing, criterium racing. So I was like, well, if she can handle a bike like a criterium in a criterium race where there's a lot of traffic and people around you and it's a really technical course, she'll be fine on the tandem. And so I just put my trust in like the process and said, I really don't have many, any other options at this point. So we literally met in Yokohama, Japan and got on a bike the day before the race. Our practice was on a loading dock supervised by a bunch of officials where they set up some cones for about 500 meters. And we just went up and down this loading dock with a 180 degree turn at either end. And that was our practice for a super technical course that was going to be on cobblestones in pouring rain. And I was like, if I don't die in this race, it'll be a miracle. (laughs) So we had low expectations and we just said, listen, we want to keep the bike upright. Biggest goal Mm. to be safe, get the points that we need. Even if I finish last, I'll still get points and let's just go have fun and get this thing done. And sure enough, uh, not only did we have a great race? We had the fastest bike split of the day. And, wow. and so it was, a, it was fantastic and just missed the podium by a few seconds. So it was, I was like, wow, that was so much fun. She goes, yeah, she goes, you want to do it again? I'm like, oh my gosh, if you're willing to race with me again, I would love to have you back. So we've been racing together ever since. Oh, what a good end to us. St- well, not even an end. It's in the middle of it. Right. But, right. Right. You know. right. <laughs> mm. Oh, wow. Great so, intro. Yeah, definitely. Um, what, Okay, so on the bike, and I've always wanted this, the guide, like what happens if they're, they're an amazing, amazing cyclist? Can you? And you're lucky. And I, okay. <laughs> yeah. Lucky because well, well look, at, look at Katie Kelly, you know, my competitor from Australia. You know, yeah. McKeeley Jones, you know, you know, seven times. Average. Champion, average. You know, just, you know, just your average triathlete you know, on the front of her bike who, you know, I hired as my coach last year. And, you know, McKeeley, um, I mean, obviously, like, is, can put down a lot of power. So if you're a smart, visually impaired triathlete, you're going to put somebody who's like a horse on the front of your bike who can throw down some serious watts um, and then can still run off the bike. And people like Kirsten and McKeeley can easily do that. And um, uh, the Italian girl has a, a girl that finished in the top 15 in Rio uh, for, for Italy uh, on as her guide. And same thing with um, Susanna and same thing with Allison in the UK. She's got Nikki Bartlett, uh, the, the Ironman pro, as her guide. So, you know, these and that's the loophole, too, is that you can mm. have an existing Ironman pro who's currently racing Ironman as your guide if you want to, if they have the time in their schedule, because obviously they need to make some money as, as Ironman pros and we race a lot. So if you can get an Ironman pro for key races who can throw down mm. some watts for a 20 K bike race, then you're really at a huge advantage. Absolutely. What, what do you think is some of the rules that um, I might not be aware of? Like, you know, some of the intricate, you know, details of para para triathlon in the visually impaired uh, category. Uh, the, the, well, the length of the tether, uh, and that, that your guy yeah. can't, can't be more than about a, a head and shoulders, uh, length ahead of you. So there's, you can't really get down near their hip to draft off of them, even though that would be super nice. <laughs> they can't drag you by the tether. So like if, if you're a dishonest person, I mean, you're, and there aren't officials that on paddle boards, like, you know, we've seen athletes get dragged by a really strong guide swimmer who literally just get the tether up into their groin and say, just pull me along. And they just sort of coast in the swim. I've seen that happen. Really? Oh, yes. Yeah, unfortunately. And then the other thing is on the run course, 
Um, you have, uh, it's about uh, 30 centimeters, so it's pretty short, your, your run tether that goes around your waist. Some people prefer to put it around their wrist or their elbow, but I wear I wear it around my waist because then it's out of, like, I have freedom to use my hands. Your yeah. gut not allowed to touch you except for what are called VI leading zones, so visually impaired leading zones that are marked on a course, kind of like a, a, a feed zone or a, a littering zone on a course. So there's a start, so it's usually on a, on a turn, like a technical turn, a 90 degree turn onto a street, or if there is a, a curb, which there shouldn't be in a pair of race, but sometimes, <laughs> like, welcome to, <laughs> welcome, welcome to Spain, the land of, like, going up and down onto sidewalks and things like that during <laughs> K race because they were trying to kill blind people. Um, <laughs> look, uh, what else? Um, and then, uh, yeah, they're not allowed to touch you in the finish shoot. Um, great example of that is my teammate in Rio. She was battling it out for the for the podium in in third slot, and she collapsed. Her leg just gave way fifty meters from the finish line. Her guide was not allowed to propel her forward, so she could allow her to help her up, but not forward. So, like, they had to be oh. careful. And your guide actually has to run slightly like about a half step behind you they can't be ahead of you when they're running and um and things like that and, and can't touch you so it's yeah it's pretty strict wow mm -hmm. have you have you ever had a brain fade in the middle of a race uh you or your guide and have been pulled up on one of those kind of rules uh no well actually uh, i shouldn't say that in gold coast last year um, we had a guy on a motorcycle. He's like, get back yelling at my guide. Cause she was right running parallel to me. And I was like, we're running parallel. Like she's definitely not ahead of me. And he's like, get back. So I was like, okay, drop back. Um, so that's the only time I've ever been spoken to about it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the, I'm, I'm glad I, I wish they would enforce the rules more and they had more efficient zones, mm -hmm. but it's hard to police, you know, 10 blind people at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So, and obviously there has to be a limit to how many blind people uh, are racing at the same time, right? Because yeah, yeah? <laughs> well, yeah, because literally you'll clothesline each other, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's it's oh, oh, I've gotten horribly tangled in swims at buoys, like around tethers and things like that. It is, well, it is of course. You think a buoy is a violent place as an age grouper or as a pro athlete with with one person? Wait till you get to, like a bunch of people that are tied to each other. It is oh a. My <laughs> imagine like yeah if you you're racing and everyone gets tethered and you come out with a different guide <laughs> <laughs> that'd be great as long as they're fast <laughs> i would never trade in. I, I hope kirsten's not listening to that i would never trade her for the world <laughs> she sounds she sounds yeah, amazing she is. so yeah. i assume you're not allowed to draft either in your racing it's non-draft yep yeah. yeah so that would be fun drafting on a tandem it was super fast because we My got seven percent faster than a single bike so yeah it's pretty fun so we uh one of our friends uh grew up in the country here in victoria at a place called beechworth which if no one's been to beechworth you need to go it's fantastic it's got an awesome brewery i Ooh. highly recommend it's yeah beautiful beautiful part of the world um and we went out out there a few years ago for her birthday and all the locals um go for a, for a group ride on the weekend and I'm thinking, oh, you know, these guys are going to turn up on, you know, old eight-speed, seven-speed bikes and, you know, not really know what they're doing. This is going to be a bit boring. But turns out they're all super fit because they've been riding on those same bikes, you know, for years. They don't need all the fancy bikes. They're just <laughs> super fit, amazing uh, athletes. And anyway – yeah, this couple, it's not not the bikers, it's the engine, right? Totally. Uh, it turns <laughs> out my engine was failing. Um, 
but yeah, this couple turned up on the tandem and everyone was telling us how, um, you know, the, the big thing, there's this certain hill that's, I don't know, a couple of K long or what, what have you. Um, and the goal is to try and beat the tandem down this hill. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty good at descending. I like to go fast. Um, Breddy was there as well, but he's not a descender. He's um, he's not a risk taker, let's put it that way. Whereas I'm like, oh, bring it on. I'll, I've got these guys. And I started off, I'm like, oh, easy. Next minute, they went. I've never seen a bicycle move so fast. It was insane how quickly they flew past me. Isn't that crazy? I know. It's so, so crazy. <laughs> it's terrifying, but fun. What's the fastest you've been on the tandem? Uh, I don't know what it is in Ks per hour, but in miles per hour, uh, it's 56 miles per hour. Oh, yeah, it's that's scary. Pretty quick. My oh, helmet, yeah. my helmet started levitating off of my head, <laughs> and the back, the back wheel, of the bike started floating a little bit off off the pavement. And I thought, okay, now's the time to break. And I just tapped my pilot. I was like, can we break a little bit, please? <laughs> so, okay, so you don't have access to brakes, is that no? <laughs> No, it's yeah, all the right. So uh, you know, you talk about a, a tough thing as a control freak to let go of <laughs> the steering, braking, and shifting thing. It's very, very hard. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and please excuse my ignorance, but you uh, tell me what what is your condition? It is. Uh, I have two conditions. One is uveitis, so it's a inflammatory autoimmune eye disease that attacks the retina and causes permanent scar tissue on the back of the eye. And the retina is basically like a mirror, and the light comes in and hits the mirror and reflects back out, and that's the image that we see. But it's like a camera, right? Right, exactly. And so in my case, there's scar tissue all over the retina, so the light can't penetrate the scar tissue and ever even reach the retina. So for me, if you look at it, look at a a photo of the back of my eye, it's sort of like a smoker's lung where it's all black dead tissue all around the edges. But in the very center, it's like pink, healthy tissue. So you'll see that's basic. And so it's tunnel vision. So I can see just in the middle. So if I'm looking at your face at a conversational distance from say five, six feet away or two a meter or so, um, I can see your right eye and your nose, but the rest of your face is totally black. So it just disappears. So I wouldn't know if you were going to shake my hand or stick your tongue out at me or, or flip me off or things like that. <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> wow. So when um, so when we first started our chat, we did have video going, but uh, we've turned it off because it's better for audio. That's really boring. <laughs> I don't know why I need to tell people that. I could have just said when we spoke on video chat. But anyway, <laughs> okay. what, what could you see of me then? Um, I have pretty good vision if I sit back far enough away, if I sit like good three or so feet away from the uh, screen. I, and luckily I actually have a smaller laptop, which helps me see more ironically. Um, ah. Bigger the screen, the less I can see. I laugh because when I first uh, started losing my sight, my former employer bought me this giant laptop. And I said, I can only see a third of the screen. <laughs> oh, of course. I'm like, bigger's not better. <laughs> a movie theater is like a nightmare for me. Cause like, I'm like, what is going on on the screen? Like I can't go to movies because i'm like what just happened did she get did she get shot like <laughs> oh my goodness oh, yeah, yeah well, i wouldn't have thought about it like that but obviously that makes sense in your for yeah. your condition so for my phone like i can see about 90 percent of my phone so the iphone's great right so is that where you do most of your emailing yeah. and so yeah. forth yeah it's much easier for me to, to work on there than it is on the computer oh wow okay mm -hmm. so you said um sorry you said the U uvi was UV uveitis yeah uveitis sorry um yep. 
that sorry was that one condition and then there was another one yes and I have glaucoma so um okay part of the treatment for uveitis is uh steroids and so I was on oral steroids for many years and that'll take me into my triathlon story in a bit but um part of the one of the side effects of high dose steroids it causes increased ocular pressure so increased pressure inside the eye which is glaucoma so I have glaucoma as well wow Okay. All the fun. <laughs> <laughs> and when did when did your sight start deteriorating? I was diagnosed at age 22, but they suspect that I probably had this condition most of my life, but um, no one noticed. So, yeah. So then, um, and I mean, this is purely, I guess, since I've had Frankie, that makes me think, oh, I wonder if there's any behavioral things uh that you that you had as a kid that could be put down to potentially having um some form of vision impairment well the first thing they asked me when i was 22 was if i was afraid of the dark as a child and i was irrationally afraid of the dark went to the point where my parents took me to therapy and i had to sleep with the lights on and i was convinced that there was monsters in the closet which a lot of kids do right so it's like sure you pass off. And at the school nurse, we would have our annual eye exam. And I, I had 20-20 vision straight ahead. So no one thought there was anything wrong with my eyesight. But it turns out uh. night blindness is the first symptom of the disease. So I had no night vision. So for me as a child, black was black. So I didn't have any ability to adapt in the dark and see anything at night. And I, I grew up on a farm and we would play tag at night. And I would just sit there hiding in the corner of the barn going, this is terrifying. Why do you, why do you think this is fun? This is so scary. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, I did not like that. Still don't like the dark. Yeah. And ironically, as a person who's losing their sight, I was like, wow, I really picked the wrong person to go blind, man. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that is, um, yeah, I mean, I just think back to when I was a kid, and yeah, you remember doing all of those eyesight tests with the board with the letters and numbers and stuff on there. But yeah, it's straight ahead of you the entire time. Mm -hmm. And still pass. Wow. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So how how can they pick up on things like that? Right. Oh wow. Yeah. So a dilated eye exam, they would have noticed. Yeah. Sure. Okay. But, you know, if there's no other issues going on, they would never have suspected. So, and I played a lot of sports as a kid, so I was always bumping into things. I was falling off my pony. I was breaking my arm and things like that. So they just assumed a lot of those injuries were because I was clumsy and really active. Mm and things like that nobody suspected that maybe my depth perception might be a little bit off um or might be getting worse and so it wasn't until 22 when it got really bad that that's when people started to notice so did you go through almost those stages of grief where you're you're angry or was it almost a relief to kind of give a bit of an well an understanding of what what had been happening no i was really angry <laughs> i was pretty and, and, you know, my only interaction with anybody who was blind or had blindness uh, issues were homeless people on the on the subway in New York City. So I thought like, oh, my gosh, like, is this what the rest of my life is going to look like? Am I have to going to move move back in with my family and uh, be taken care of for the rest of my life and be a burden? So I had no frame of reference that there were people that were high functioning that were living with vision loss. So it was pretty I was pretty, pretty pissed off. Wow. So sorry, you, so you're in New York. Is that just because that's where you went for, for the testing or did you end up moving to New York from the country? 
I grew up uh, about an hour outside of New York City, but it was actually horse country where I lived. Uh, ironically, it went from, you know, major urban area to beautiful sprawling fields and grass and things like that. It's kind of kind of cool that it's so close to New York City. So I, a lot of my doctors that I saw were in New York, in, in, this, in Manhattan. Right. Okay. Far out. That's such a visual you saying that um, the only um, time you had any sort of uh, dealings with anyone was blind was was with um, homeless people. I imagine ah. as a young 22-year-old, 20, that would be absolutely frightening and that's what you envisioned for your for your future. Yeah, I, I really thought that that was going to be my life. I thought, oh, my God, this is the – it felt like a death sentence, honestly. Yeah. So, yeah, I was I was pretty scared. So you're obviously – and you mentioned this, um, you know, being a control freak, independent kind of person. Um, I imagine a big part of that is as a result of being diagnosed and having to, you know, step up your independent game. But were you always really quite an independent person? <laughs> yes, very much so. Okay. Okay. Um, so and and also because you know I grew up with a, sing- a single mom, and so I it, not that I was forced to be independent, but um, yeah, I mean we were definitely not the latchkey kids where we got off the bus and you'd make your afternoon snack and you'd go do your homework and you'd go do your chores with the horses and and then mom would come home and cook dinner kind of thing. So independence was just part of our life, and um, you know I if I wanted anything, I had to work for it. So I think I had my first job at eight years old, you know, which was brushing. We, after my parents divorced, I was six or seven when they divorced. And, um, we, my mom couldn't afford the horses after my dad, my dad was out of the picture. So I still was obsessed with ponies and horses. So I joined a local 4-H club and I got a job at a local barn mucking stalls in exchange for riding lessons. And so Years old, the bus would drop me off in the afternoon after school, and I would go there and I would brush them and bring them in from the field and you know clean the stalls and wash you know scrub water buckets and things like that, anything I could in order to get a ride. So, uh, so yeah, being independent was pretty much from a very young age. Oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah, such a uh, yeah, and I imagine your work ethic has just evolved and grown from that. Hmm. Yeah. As I mean, I, I give my mom a lot of credit. I mean, we, you know, she didn't make a lot of money. She was a housekeeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually worked for the designer Vera Wang, the design, the, the dress designer. Yeah. So it was kind of cool. So I grew up uh, as a little kid. My mom would bring me to work with her, especially in the summer, because we couldn't really always afford summer camp. And um, so I grew up swimming in Vera Wang's pool <laughs> and playing in her house. And it was, it was pretty cool. She lived oh, in Oh, my gosh giant 30,000 square foot converted barn. It was magnificent. It was like something out of a magazine. Well, it was in a lot of magazines. And <laughs> so my mom was in charge of cleaning the bloody place. And and so, yeah, I, I treated it like it was my castle and I got to run around and she had a giant flat screen TV back in the day. We're talking in 1981, 82. <laughs> so it was one of those wow. overhead projection televisions. So I got to watch my afternoon cartoons on there. It was pretty cool. So, are you are you impressed that I know who Vera Wang is? Yes, I am. Impressed. I'm impressed. I'm like, wow, okay. She she translates. That's cool. Across <laughs> the globe, Vera. She's yeah. So that was back when she was working for Vogue as the editor. And uh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So she's she's a really cool lady. So um, from there, my mom actually put herself through wallpapering school. Um, I think she was probably about 30, 31 at the time. 
because uh, she loved she loved working with her hands, and uh, she's very creative, and and she likes physical she likes physical, hard physical labor, and um, I wonder where I get it from. <laughs> so I chose the hardest sport I could possibly find. Um, yeah. <laughs> three sports that I could do. So watching her and, you know, she, again, she didn't make a lot of money, but she always figured out a way to get it done and keep a roof over our heads and food on the table. So I think that work ethic was definitely instilled in me watching her, you know, struggle and accomplish a lot of things on her own. Well, what's her name? Kathy. Kathy, you're an impressive woman. That is for sure. She sure is. Um, you, you use the term latchkey kid. So yeah. the only reason I know that word is through listening to my murder podcast that I'm obsessed with because they've used that term quite a lot. But I actually don't know what that means. It's not an Australian term whatsoever. Oh, so it's basically a kid that has to let themselves in and out of the house because they are not being let in by an adult. So they have keys to, to allow themselves to come and go. So they're a latchkey kid. So in the afternoons, they, they unlatch the door and they go inside and they're, they go about their business without a parent being present. And is that typically because the parents meant to be at, at work? So they get yeah, home from yeah. school and they make their own snacks and do whatever Ex- they... Exactly. It exactly. is very, quite a literal meaning. Yeah, it literally is. Yep. Wow. Okay. There you go. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So it, can I ask, Is um, from the sounds of things, your dad was never really in the picture? Uh, no. After I was seven, he was out of the picture. And then he wow. actually six months after I got diagnosed with my eye disease. So that was a, that was a heck of a year. <laughs> oh, my God. What? So what year was that? Uh, that he passed? Uh, oof, it was 22 years ago. So whatever yeah. that was to. <laughs> Yeah, like you say, what a hell of a year. I met, I yeah. imagine that would have been a, I mean, gosh, what a mix of emotions over that six months or so. Yeah, it was it was challenging. So my the Cliff Notes version of my relationship with my dad, he, you know, my mom was always athletic. She ran, she was a runner, and I would ride my little tricycle on the track while she would run laps at night after work after after cleaning houses all day and but she would do it to get together with my neighbor and socialize and that was they would walk and they would jog and um and then us kids would ride our bikes and um my dad was a hockey player and uh where i lived in the winter it would be cold so we would play like watch him play ice hockey on the on the lake where we live and so we grew up uh skating and learning learning how to skate and uh on hockey skates and on figure skates um but my dad was mentally ill and uh, beat the heck out of my sister and myself and my mother. Um, and so finally, uh, my sister got brave enough to report him uh, to the authorities when she was 13 after he in- injured her quite badly. And so uh, my mom's hand was forced uh, in order to leave him. She had tried to leave him several times, but he found her like he would find she would go hide somewhere at her a friend's house or she escaped down to Florida, which is about a thousand miles away, but he called, he found the number where she was staying and called her up and threatened her. And so she came home. And so, you know, he was really not well. He had what's called um, borderline personality disorder and, and bipolar, or, or back then they called it manic depression, but it's probably what you would know as bipolar today. Um, yeah. And so again, phenomenal work ethic, which is what attracted my mother to him because he would work himself to exhaustion. He worked in construction. Um, he worked for a big uh, contracting company, uh, 
operating heavy machinery like cranes and he would dig out, you know, big pits and things like that uh, for, you know, he actually built PepsiCo, their headquarters. Like, so that was big projects that he worked on, but he would be, you know, again, super happy. Like he, he got us involved in horses. He was very much into horses himself. And he always was a big fan of John Wayne and old Westerns. And so taught my sister and I had a ride and we had horses on the property and we would do great projects with my dad. Like we helped him build the barn. We would go camping, we'd go fishing, but then something would snap in him, whatever the trigger was. Um, it could be that I didn't tie my shoelace properly. So, you know, all of a sudden that would set him off and he would just break your wrist. He's like, well, I'll teach you how to, you know, I'll teach you how to show, you know, to tie your laces, you know, like, or you'll never make that mistake again kind of thing. So, but he would, it would be so sudden and violent and out of nowhere. And then the next day it was like, it never happened. Um, so again, that kind of borderline personality disorder or manic depression sort of explosiveness. And it was very unpredictable with him. And then, um, back then this is, um, you know, women didn't talk about these things. And so my mom, you know, was sort of left to her own to deal with it. And being this tough woman, she just was like, she went to her mother-in-law, his mom, and said, you know, what was going on? And her, the answer back then was, well, honey, just don't make him mad. <laughs> you know, yeah. just, just don't make him angry and be a good wife. You know, make sure that he's got food on the table and that, you know, um, the girls are behaving and and you, it will be fine. He's a good provider because back then that was the priority. You know, like it was making sure you had a, a nice roof over your head and things like that. And he was very attractive and he and he was very successful in his job. And so he was making $60,000 back in 1970s, which was a lot of money back then. And so, but, you know, everybody was like, well, he's such a keeper because he was very charming and handsome in public, but in private, he was very violent and terrifying. So my mom sort of lived this double life and, you know, tried to, you know, she was trying her best to get away from him, but just couldn't until things finally came to a head when my sister was 13. And so it was, it ended up being obviously a, a phenomenal blessing, but very traumatic for the whole family. And so we, we moved out of the house until we could, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, have the courts get him removed from the house cause he wouldn't leave. And he, unfortunately he took the horses with them, with him and sold them oh. no, never knew where they went. And, um, yeah, it was pretty traumatic, but so I had supervised visitation with him as a, as a child because of the history of violence. I had to have either a police officer or, um, an adult that my mom and dad agreed to and that the court signed off on a, a, a supervi supervised visitation. It could be somebody from Child Protective Services, which is what it initially was. Uh, and I was never allowed to be alone with him because they were afraid that he would abduct uh, me or my sister. And so that was until age 11. So from the time I was seven to 11. And in my eyes, you know, for me, it was tough. Everybody's like, were you afraid of your dad? I'm like, no, I was actually more afraid of my mother because my mother was more the enforcer, honestly. You know, right. if you didn't clean your room, you were going to get yelled at. And I was more afraid of her yelling than him hitting, if that makes any sense. Um, because he, the next day he'd come home with like a new stuffed animal or he'd come home with a new saddle for the horse. And he'd be like, hey, pal, look what I got. And like, oh, dad's home. And so he was always the hero, even though he was so scary, which was, again, very odd. But. I was little enough at seven that that was my whole world. So I didn't really know any different. I just assumed that if you didn't learn how to tie your shoelaces or you didn't eat your peas, you were going to get punched. Um, and that was how parents enforced, you know, bad behavior. And so I didn't, again, I had no frame of reference also because 
my neighbors, their, their father was abusing them as well. So we were like, oh man, dad, boy, what happened to you yesterday? Kind of thing. So swapping stories like that. Well, I didn't latch the barn door and the horses got out. So I got in trouble. And so, yeah, I got beaten up. So, so again, we didn't have any, we didn't have any frame of reference that, that, that our lives were different um, until I was 11 and I was on a supervised visit and he had been behaving himself obviously very well in these visits because he had to. Um, and at this point, I think he was in therapy and I, he might've been on medication at this point. And um, he had one of those moments where he uh, grabbed me to try to shove me in his car. And the person that was supervising was my aunt. And so he struck her. And that's when I realized that I was in a really unsafe situation and I was old enough to sort of figure out that this wasn't normal. And that was the last time I saw him before he died 11 years later. So, yeah, so very challenging, uh, to, you know, for six, 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 seven years of my life. But what it taught me is like, is well, a lot of things, but, um, one, my mother is an amazing person and she's the toughest woman I know. And two, that, um, nothing is insurmountable and also three that like you never know what's going on behind closed doors because by all appearances we were a normal family we were well dressed we were well spoken you know we went to you know camping trips and we did all the normal family things but and again you know the bruises or whatever or the broken bones were easily explainable by oh well she fell off her horse or she you know she was diving in the pool and she hit her head or you know or the horse gave her a black eye, you know, the, all those things. And again, that was normal in our world. So, yeah, but not uh, clearly not. <laughs> uh, I mean, you've done what not many people can do and you've made me a bit speechless. Um, I First of all, I'm sorry that I brought it up, but it sounds <laughs> like... Don't, don't, don't be. It's, it's made me who I am. And it's, honestly, yeah. it's me, you know, everybody says, like, how do you deal with the the challenges that you're dealing with now, you know, I've had my part of the treatment for my disease is chemotherapy. Um, I went through chemotherapy for two years. Uh, I ended up with a malignancy from the chemotherapy, ironically. Um, and then I ended up having to undergo surgery to slow down the progression of my disease. And I've had 33 surgeries in the last six years. And everybody's like, well, how do you, how do you do that and compete at the highest level and do triathlon as uh, professionally while visually impaired and trying to have surgeries all around the country? And I'm like, I have resiliency is my thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like, like, like this is nothing in the grand scheme of things. I've been through a lot worse in, in, in my life. And so you get this like mental toughness gene that allows you to be like, you know what? And also perspective, because as much as it sounds, it, it, you know, like looking back on what I just said, like, obviously it's like, it sounds horrifying, but I also know people that have been through far worse than me. And I also had the blessing of being on a team with other para athletes that have been through horrible moments of PTSD of their own, you know, getting blown up in Afghanistan and Iraq and, you know, who are missing limbs and have phantom leg pain in their leg isn't even there. And so I look at that and I go, wow, it really teaches you perspective. Like, again, you never know what's going on behind closed doors because Tom, you know, when he's racing is like the happiest super guy. And then you share a hotel with, room with him at night and he's got all these horrible night terrors from like seeing his buddies get blown up in Afghanistan. So again, it's given me a lot of perspective that everybody has a story and it like, and I, it's my story and, and I don't think it's any worse, better, different than a lot of, a lot of other people's. Wow. I honestly, this is, this is why I love doing the podcast because 
you almost have this limitless amount of time to be able to have a discussion um, to allow people to, I don't know, uh, break down those walls and become more vulnerable, which, you know, there's so many stories to tell out there. And I had absolutely no idea that that was the direction this discussion was going to take. And um, I cannot thank Amy uh, more for being so vulnerable and open uh, with with her many stories, and we've still got more to come. Uh, so I guess this is a, it's a good time for a little bit of intermission because that got quite quite heavy, quite quite deep. So if you're looking for ways to support WITSAP uh, and help us tell these kind of stories and the many other stories that are out there, uh, then please consider becoming a WITSAP Patreon member. Just head to patreon.com slash WITSAP or head to the link in the description of this bio. Back to Amy. Um, You do a bit of public speaking, right? Mm-hmm. What, I mean, just listening, I mean, we've been going for 40 minutes and I've barely even got onto some of the things <laughs> I wrote down that I want to talk to you about uh, because, <laughs> and, and this is this is what I love about these having the opportunity um, to ha- to have these conversations is I, I wouldn't I wouldn't get to know you um, if it weren't for this podcast um, and my impressions of you just from our you know our chats via email or private message or whatever you just and you sound like you just come across quite a bubbly positive person um, so th- thank you for sharing all of your stories so far. Um, yeah, that- you know, I was laughing last week. I was listening to your podcast with Katie Zafiris and uh, I was like, ex- 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 we were talking about excreting or secreting happiness. <laughs> <I> was, Katie, <laughs> I, like, I want to be Katie when I grow up. Cause she's just like, <laughs> talking about positive people. She is, she's like the, the, the height of positivity. I love her. <laughs> yeah, it's true. She's a good egg. That is for sure. Um, oh, love her. Yeah. Your public speaking. My question with that was, what what do you what do you hope for people to walk away from that um, session, whatever you want to call it, what, in whatever sort of it, it looks like for you? What what's the one thing you would like each person in that room to walk away from having listened to you? Good question. I always say that there is always an option. There is always a way forward. Uh, no matter what and how traumatic and how horrified and how disgusting, you know, whatever it is that you're going through, there is always, always a way forward. You may not like it. And so one of the things that um, in my prior, my previous life, I was a sommelier. I worked in the wine business for 20 years. Oh, uh, we got to get to that. I got to drop that bomb on you. So, so yeah. So, and one of the, the prerequisites of management at this company that I worked at is that I had to take the Dale Carnegie leadership and public speaking course. And one of the principles that Dale Carnegie teaches is about um, the worry principles. And the worry principles is write down everything that is troubling you or the, whatever challenge it is that you're dealing with. And then write down all the possible solutions and then act, choose one and act. And, it, and the thing is, like, the problem that why people don't act on things or don't um, get out of situations, they don't like their options. But I'm sorry. It doesn't mean you have to like it. <laughs> you just have to do it. So, um, and, it, and it could be super uncomfortable. But the one thing I've learned with everything that I've gone through the past, you know, 10 years with all this shenanigans of losing my sight, 
every choice that I've made has led to something better. And so, and I, you may not see it initially, but, and it's, it may not be what you planned. Um, and it's usually not what you planned because life gets in the way. Um, everybody, I don't care what it is that you're dealing with, but, um, you know, I always say when you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. Not that I'm a religious person, but <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I really feel that. And so you have to make peace with the fact that like, this is the plan B it's maybe it's not the plan A that I wanted, but like, I'm going to stick to it and, and give it everything I've got. And then, and then don't look back. Like you, you've got to, you've got to commit to it and make a decision and go. So that's, that's basically what I, I talk about is, you know, you, you may not like the solution, but there's a solution. I love it. I'm furiously making notes because these, uh, just, I mean, I'm just thinking that these are just amazing quotes and tidbits and all, already just the last couple of minutes have just, you've m made a bell go off in my own mind about certain things. And what I really liked about that is you've given, or you seem to be able to give people a practical thing to do, write mm -hmm. down all of those solutions. You're yep. probably not going to like the majority or you're probably not going to like all of the solutions. Exactly. But you've just got to choose one. And yep. I think that's that's I think that's really powerful and a really practical way of approaching something. And you know, you have to kind of be um uh you brutal about it. You I mean you yeah. have to like take take unfortunately take emotion off the table, which is really, really hard because so many decisions are emotion based, but you're like, mm. what is the best possible decision for me right now, given what I'm given what I'm facing, what is the best, what, what guarantees or gives me the best possible outcome that I'm hoping for. So that's it. That's all you can do. And then, and then from there, you got to just commit to it. Yeah. Are you, um, let's try and give you a bit of a plug. Are you doing, um, any public speaking at the moment virtually or anything like that? <laughs> uh, actually I've been doing some virtual wine tastings, which has been kind of fun. Stop uh, it. Yeah, it's been a blast. Um, so doing where we ship the wine out to um, attendees like a week or two in advance of the tasting. And then we do a big Zoom call of like 70, 80 people uh, with this winery. And we have the winemaker at the winery and he's giving us a tour of like the cellar and the, the vineyards. It's really fun, actually. So I've been doing a little bit of that, but public speaking right now. Um, I've done some for a couple companies that I work with. But yeah, it's been hard with COVID. A lot of the stuff got canceled. So yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm hoping that people are listening to this and just making a mental note to get in contact with you because if if all that people get is that last couple of minutes and I've made all these notes, if if that's all they get from a chat with you, then that is gold. Oh, thanks. I truly truly believe that. Um, but on a more serious note, how do we get you to send me wine and <laughs> and chat about it? Right? Oh my god. Well, you live in like the one of the best countries in the world for wine. Like uh, Margaret River area is like one of my favorite areas in Hunter Valley and, and Oh Clay. yeah. Oh, just lovely, lovely wines. Oh, so many beautiful estates there. And they're all dry farmed and I don't know how they fared with the most recent wildfires, but I hope everybody's still in good shape down there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um yeah, I, I think the majority uh are all okay. Um but uh, what? Okay, let's talk. First of all, how do we say the word sommelier? Sommelier. 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 Yes, exactly. <laughs> yep. That's it. You got it. <laughs> You're in. Uh, there are some words 
in the English language that I just cannot get my tongue around. It's French, so that's that's fair. Well, yeah, yeah. The the French folk don't (laughs) don't like my impression of the French language. (laughs) And that is a fact. (laughs) There was a word that we were, oh, God, what were we talking about last night, Breddy and I, and there was one word that, oh, here it is, and I'm clearly going to stuff it up because now I'm overthinking it. Um, (laughs) So if you've got, let's see if you can come up with it. So you've got a meal and then you're going to um, add a salad to it, but it's like just a bit of a side salad. You, It's an accompaniment. Accompaniment, yes, yeah, it's a weird I, word. It's a weird word. I, I'll give that to you. Yes, I cannot say it. It, it doesn't even sound like a real word. I, I totally agree. It doesn't. Com- when you write it, it, it looks even worse. You're like, that can't be right. Yeah. So I, I was like, all right, I need to look it on my screen so I can just sort of read it out phonetically. Um, accompany me. I cannot say it. I cannot say it. Anyway. But, Let's go back to um, your experience and expertise in the wine field. What exactly is a s- s- sommelier? No, somebody somebody who drinks for a living. You know, <laughs> <laughs> triathlete, somebody who runs bikes and swims. So a sommelier is somebody who drinks wine for a living. So I the I, the the backstory is that uh, as I started losing my sight, I was w- waiting tables. I was working in the restaurant business at night in order to pay for college. Uh, for university. Um, and I had no money. And uh, I was probably, I think, 19 years old. So I wasn't even legal age in the United States to drink. But the okay. owner of the restaurant was really passionate about wine. And so he would run these specials every Friday and Saturday night for guests where he would have a white wine and a red wine that he would sell for $25. And so whatever waitress sold the most of those wines would get if you were 21, he'd give you a bottle or he would give you a bonus like 20 bucks or he would give you a gift certificate to the movies or to the restaurant. So being a starving college student, you know, trying to pay for school, I was super motivated to try to sell as much wine as I could. And that's a pretty decent salesperson. And so this is the days before the Internet. So I would try to find out the wines in advance and do a little bit of research on them. I'd go to my local wine shop and I'd ask questions with my fake my fake ID. <laughs> I'd go to the restaurant. To, to the local wine shop and I'd ask a bunch of questions about the wine so that I could t- put some notes down on paper. So when I w- w- would walk up to a table, I would sound like I knew what I was talking about. And I would say, this is round and smooth and opulent. And it's from opulent. and it, it's very robust and it has notes of berries. And so like, I had no idea what I was saying, but I, I, would, I would write all this stuff down. And so by the end of the night, I was embellishing incredibly and I would sell it. Mm-hmm wine and so the, the owner of the restaurant finally said well he's like you seem pretty good at this do you like wine I'm like yeah it's okay you know like I, I enjoy it I'm like it's not really my go-to drink I'm 19 yeah. um <laughs> I'm all about beer right now and um so he said well I would be happy to pay for you to become certified as a sommelier in New York City and instead of working five nights a week you can work two nights a week and, and make more money than you do now and I said well that's good math yeah, <laughs> yeah. That sounds fantastic. I would love to have my time back so I can study more and work less. This sounds great. So um, I went two nights a week into New York City to take classes and I became certified. And the condition was that I had to stay on in the restaurant for a year um, after I, I took the course and teach others what I learned. And so I agreed to that. And then um, I started bumping into things because it was a fine dining establishment that had very low lighting. And so I found myself struggling to 
pour wine into glasses, like I would miss and I would pour it onto the table. And I was like, so embarrassed. And I would bump into the bus boys because they wore dark colored shirts. And so everybody was like, what is your problem? Like, pay attention. Like, what? Do you? And I thought I was overtired and I didn't realize that I was losing my sight. And so finally, once I got diagnosed, I had to stop working at night because I couldn't drive at night anymore, even to get to the restaurant. Um, and it was just too busy. I was just slamming into too many people. I was, I was really a, a walking hazard. So I realized that I, I needed to work in a better lit environment. And so I decided to go work in retail in the wine business. And so uh, it was better lighting, a little slower pace. I could talk to customers. I could sell wine. And so from there, I got hired by one of the top 20 wine shops in the country a few, few years later after I finished my education. And uh, I became the buyer for a chain of retail stores in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut eventually. So, oh, my God. Yeah. So my job was traveling to Europe. Um, meeting with uh, suppliers and winemakers, tasting wines, coming up with custom blends for my stores, uh, coming up with names for the wines, things like that, or deciding which wines we wanted to import um, or negotiating relationships with different wineries. It was a lot of fun. Such a wonderful life. It's it like, uh, you know, I was traveling all over the world for my job and now I'm doing that for my job in a different way. <laughs> my, it sounds like you've had about four lives within your life. I have. <laughs> I'm really a hundred. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, I mean, the other thing I just find fascinating is that a job requisite for you is finding a job that has good lighting. Like that is just, <laughs> my gosh. Yeah. Well, one, I mean, one thing that was great about the wine business. So, you know, at the time I was studying pharmacy at the university of Connecticut and I was determined to be a, a, a world-class pharmaceutical researcher working in a laboratory with mice and curing HIV and things like that. It was my, my life dream. And suddenly I was told that I could not be a blind pharmacist. They're like, oh, you know, Vicodin, aspirin, it feels the same. You know? oh, <laughs> and they were convinced I was going to be totally blind within a year. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'm losing my sight. What can I do? Um, and I knew that with, I had already invested in my education as a sommelier. And I thought, well, no matter what happens with my eyesight, I always have my nose in my palate. So I'll always yep. was taste and taste and smell wine. So that is my backup career. So I ended up making my backup career into a really wonderful career. And I loved it. My gosh. And okay, yeah. here's, here's the, the dumb question that I'm sure everyone is thinking. So I'm just going to ask it because yeah. um, you're losing, you know, your sight does it put more emphasis on your taste and smell or is that a myth? It's not a myth. I don't think that it's necessarily that, that you suddenly become a super taster or a super smeller. Yeah. Uh, you are forced to focus on those senses more. And so, sure. yes, I'm more acute at using them. It's just like if you suddenly couldn't use your right arm, you'd get really good at using your left. Of course. Oh, yeah. Same idea. Yeah. 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 Um. Okay, so what what what's what floats your boat in the 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 wine? Um, no, I was not going to say industry. That's not right. What what kind of what's your favorite kind of wine? Well, I always laugh. You know, um, I always say like my desert island wines would be a good boutique grower champagne that's like you know made from Grand Cru vineyards. If I had an endless supply of that and coconut water, I think I'd be okay. Uh, <laughs> Or dry, believe it or not, dry Riesling from Germany. I like really good dry Riesling because it's, really I love sushi and it's like the perfect sushi wine because um, it goes with everything because it has a little hint of residual sugar, but it has also very high acid. So acid and sugar are, are, are very friendly to food. So if you ever struggle for like 
you don't know what to bring and you don't know what somebody's cooking, Riesling will go with no matter what you throw at it. It's, it's a very safe wine, as is champagne. So champagne and Riesling are like one of those things that you can't really screw up the pairing too much. I always, I always think of Riesling as sweet. It can be because a lot of the stuff that we see that's imported from, from Germany is. But if you see Trocken, T-R-O-C-K-E-N, yeah. or Cabinet, K-A-B-I-N-E-T-T, um, if you see either of those words, that means it's a dry Riesling. Right. By that. Yeah. All right. I'm willing to try. I'm not, I'm not a white. I'm all about the red. Um, and I can cope with the sparkle. <laughs> yeah. Well, for red, I'm a Pinot Noir geek. Like I love Pinot, a good, a good Pinot from anywhere. I love it actually from New Zealand is uh, there's oh. some real, from central Otago. Like it's some amazing wines down there. Hard to beat. Very hard to That's beat. Extraordinary. Um, I never used to like Pinot, but it's definitely grown on me. That is for sure. But I think it's because I've found some good ones. I think. Yes. Yeah. Which yeah. I probably, I guess goes with anything, right? True. Yep, it does. It does. Um, so Brett is making a gnocchi tonight with burnt butter sauce. What do you recommend Ooh. we drink with that? Well, uh, is it like a potato gnocchi? Like or yes. is, Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, you said it's a creamy kind of sauce? Uh, burnt butter. So burnt butter. What, whatever that means. Um, so, yeah, so a lighter Pinot Noir, like something, again, um, not, not too fat and juicy, like not, not something with super high acid. If you have like a rounder, softer Pinot or, um, honestly, Chardonnay, I'm not a big Chardonnay fan, but that, like that burnt butter, that's such a beautiful, that's a, such a beautiful pairing, like white Burgundy from, uh, Burgundy in France is such a, is a hundred percent Chardonnay with just a little bit of Oak and it's, and that would be exquisite that's a great that would be my favorite pairing with that gosh i could talk to you about this for so long because oh, i, I just got to wine all day <laughs> and the thing is as well i guess um i mean you can be an expert which clearly you are but also a lot of it would come down to individual taste as well right yes i always tell people everybody asks me oh what's 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 the best wine to buy i'm like well how many sugars do you put in your coffee and how much milk or or oh. or they're like, oh, and I said, yeah, that gives me a good frame of reference. So like if you like a really milky latte with a shit ton of sugar or or honey or like that tells me a lot about your palate and people's palate generally go in this kind of bell curve from the time that you're like a teenager. You generally like yeah. sweet wines and sweeter things. And then as you get a little older, your palate gets a little bit more refined and you tend to gravitate more towards dry. And then as you get older, unfortunately, the sensitivity of your palate starts to decline. And so then you crave sweet again because you can't taste anything else. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's a really interesting curve. But so I always ask them how many sugars are, are, or, or do they take no sugar? They're like a really like black tea. Then they probably like a really tannic, like Cabernet or a Malbec or something like that. That That's what that would tell me. So, okay, so I get what is called here in Melbourne, it's called a magic, which sounds as wanky Ooh. as it is. Uh, it, it's basically a double ristretto um, mm -hmm. pour with, you know, like if you think of a small latte cup, you only fill up that cup about half of the way up. So it's it's kind of like a strong piccolo-ish kind of drink. Um, yep. And I waver between no sugar and half a sugar. So I would say things like um, Syrahs or Shiraz, as you call it in Australia. Um, like, oh, my so God. Are we saying it wrong? What? We say Shiraz. Is that wrong? No, that's correct. But in, in, in Europe and America, they call it Syrah. It's the same exact grape, but it was, it was just a different name for the same exact wine. Well, so, there you go. Yeah. It's like um, 
pen or I don't know, write a utensil. I don't know. So same thing, but um, yeah. bad analogy, but you get the idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I would say Shiraz would probably be at the top of your list. I would say um, on the, on the fruitier side, uh, Merlot, certain Malbecs, um, I would say um, Southern French reds like Chateauneuf de Pop um, or Cote de Rhone, things like that would, would probably be fitting of your palate. So I would check those out. Also, mm -hmm. uh, Cabernet Franc from the Loire Valley. And I can email all this to you too as well. I'll send you some wine recommendations. Oh my gosh, please do. Um, yeah. Well, you've nailed it because I love me a Shiraz. I love a, I love a strong red that but you need to be eating it with the right food. Right. Totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's fascinating. Geez, you're good. You nailed it. I, it's kind of what I do. Yeah. It's what um, I do. <laughs> Amy, we have been chatting for an hour and I <laughs> would love to continue chatting, but I've got these three questions that I am trying to ask everybody at the end of the podcast. I'm so, ready. I've been thinking okay. about them. I <laughs> I, sort of. <laughs> All right. First question is, what are you currently obsessed with? Ooh, um, I am, oh, so many things. Netflix and uh, books on tape. I'm listening to a book called uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it's about the, <laughs> yeah, I know, it sounds really weird. Um, but with COVID and everything like that going on right now and the Olympics getting delayed and the Paralympics getting delayed, like I've been dealing with a lot of stress and mm any of the uncertainty of races happening. And so trying to find ways to manage stress. And I'm not really a meditation kind of person because I don't sit still for very long. Yep. I hear you. Right. So that's like, I'll think about 20 things in the, in the three minute meditation. <laughs> so that's not a good plan for me. And so trying to find alternative ways to reduce stress, um, but learn the physiology behind the, the fight or flight um, mechanism in our body and how, you know, that affects our health in general, and, you know, it can be a precursor to diabetes and things like that. So it talks a lot about case studies uh, in rats and, and, and in humans about how stress ultimately will manifest, manifest itself physically. So the importance of managing your cortisol levels in your body uh, by having good sleep and, and, you know, obviously diet and things like that and managing stress and finding ways to manage stress. So that's, that's an important one to me right now. So that's my current obsession. Wow. And I like that it takes away, I guess, I, you know, the emotional side of things. It's really getting down to the nitty gritty um, biological, physiological reasons. Yeah. And that, that for me, like that, I'm not a, you know, super touchy feely kind of person in that, in that way. I like being a science nerd, you know, having a background in pharmaceuticals. It's like, I really, I want to understand why my body is behaving in this way. And, you know, like, I'm dealing with injury and why I've been sick for like a month. And, and so now I'm starting to understand it. And rather than be angry at my body, I'm like, Oh, now I understand why my body's behaving the way it is like, okay, so how can I improve again? How can I improve upon this, this current situation by managing, you know, managing stress? Okay. So I look at it from a very practical and pragmatic kind of standpoint and take a step back and be like, okay, well, these are the steps I'm going to take. Cool. It. What's it called? Why don't zebras get ulcers? Is that right? What, uh, why zebras don't get ulcers. Got it. I'll make a note of that and we'll add a I link. I actually learned, a, learned about it on another podcast on Lauren Fleshman's um, and uh, and Jesse Thomas, their their podcast. Was that Work, Play, Love or whatever they yeah. they They're uh, great, yeah. hey. Yeah, they're so funny. Yeah. And she's yeah. so – her post, she's, she's 
very intelligent and empathetic. She's a she yeah. is so dialed in. She's a smart girl. Absolutely. Um, okay, great answer. What what out of just curiosity are you obsessed with on Netflix or any other kind of streaming platform? Uh, I just listen. I just watched binge watched The Crown about um, Queen uh-huh. Fascinating, and I really identified with her in that you know again being in you know, on a a national team and having so much structure in that, you know, certainly nothing like the royal family, but like where you're expected to behave a certain way and you you have to have a certain dialogue or language out there and, um, and it can feel very stifling at times. And so not being able to really necessarily say what you think all the time, um, to kind of walk the party line so that's, uh, I really identified with her and, and I was like, gosh, it's a lifetime of like, biting your lip and going okay and like i just can't say i can't have an opinion on this so yeah (laughs) well i can but i have to keep it to myself so so, yeah so that that is fascinating to me because i you know so much of what social media is what you know it's image control right it it, i mean it's really we put out there we want what we want people to see and you and i after and i'm sure you've dealt with the same thing interviewing people there is so much going on that people don't talk about and so i really love following people like Lauren. I love following people like Kara Goucher from the clean sport podcast and, you know, people that are, you know, very outspoken about what, what's really going on in their lives. And they're kind of just because somebody else is probably dealing with the same thing. So I really love listening to people like that. I, and, and I think they're so brave to do it. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. We're going to yeah. um, leave links as well. I think to those podcasts in the description of this one as well, because they are fantastic ones for people to listen to for sure. Um, yeah. I am going to send you a photo right now. I think you know how this goes, but it's a photo that I've grabbed from your Instagram feed and I would like okay. you to describe this photo. It's coming through on WhatsApp in just a second. <laughs> That's, a, <laughs> That's a very funny photo. Yeah. So that is a photo of um, it's for, oh, well, that's right. People can't see this. So um, it is a photo of a uh, ceramic dog that is, has been painted as a superhero. Like I think he's dressed like Spock because uh, he's got like Spock ears. So I went to go visit uh, a guide dog school. I have a guide dog. His name is Woodstock. He's a German shepherd and he's from oh. Fidelco Guide Dog Foundation. And he's actually staring very longingly at me because he's like, you're 30 minutes late for my dinner time, you awful woman. Sorry, we'll stop He's like, oh, he's like, she talks all the time. So I went, I was racing in Florida and I got, I, there's a school down there that I've always wanted to have a tour of the facility because they're known for producing wonderful yellow Labrador, or yellow, not yellow, Labrador guide dogs for not only people that are blind, but also um, PTSD service animals for, uh, veterans. And so they have this like walk of heroes outside of the school where big donors can, uh, adopt a statue and have it painted in whatever theme that they, they feel is appropriate. So this one was, um, uh, about superheroes, I think, and having to do with the, the military, if I'm not mistaken. So this is a, a guide dog statue of a yellow lab, like, that's got a, a red cape on and he's clearly saving the world <laughs> one black <blind> time. <laughs> well, and I like that he's paws up like almost like the Superman pose as well, yes. like one arm out in front. It's very cool. Yes, yes he's so cool. <laughs> I, di- I didn't realise that, that German Shepherds made for great guide dogs as well. 
Yeah, actually, you know, 95% of guide dogs are Labradors. And the reason being is that they love food. (laughs) Yeah, very easy to train in that like they're a lot of guide dog training is food reward. Um, Where Shepherds are not particularly interested in food as much as a lab. So it makes them a little bit more challenging to train. But it's, you know, I had a yellow lab before I had Woodstock. I had a yellow lab named Elvis and I had him for eight years and he just passed away at 13 actually. And my mom adopted oh. him and he retired. Um, and uh, everybody asked me, you know, like, what do you prefer? It's like, you know, asking somebody like, you know, which of your kids do you like better? It's yeah. a tough, you're like, well, I love them both equally for different reasons. And Elvis, when I got him, the yellow lab was the right dog for me at the time. You know, I had only, I grew up, riding horses. And so the thought of trusting a four-legged animal with my safety was like, are you crazy? That's dangerous. Like, that sounds horrible. I'm going to die. Like, things going to walk me into a tree or something. <laughs> so that, like, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, no. I was like, absolutely not. And so I was dead set against it. And my sister's like, no, no, like they they take care of you and they're very loving. I'm like, yeah, I don't know about this. And I met Elvis and like, not only was he infallible for the eight years of service that he worked for me, like he never walked me into a bloody thing. It was just such, I mean, he saved my life on many occasions from overhead power lines, from trains, from cars, from pedestrians. I mean, he's an amazing dog, but I couldn't have gotten through all the surgeries and the chemo without having this like goofy, happy yellow lab at my side, like who would like tilt his head every now and then and just sort of stare at you like, what? Like, let's go play ball, you know? So how do you, have a bad day when you have an animal like that, who's just like, absolutely his entire greatest joy in life is in making you happy. And uh, then I, but I laugh between the two dogs, my, you know, Elvis was kind of like the Volkswagen of the guide dog world, super dependable, reliable, cheap parts that you can buy for it. Um, (laughs) Anybody can drive it. Like it's the kind of car that you can loan to your friend. You're you're not worried. They're going to fuck it up. Um, and Woodstock is this like high performance German engineering, like, like driving a Ferrari or a Porsche and like super incredible handling. It's like a tri bike versus a road bike, like a road or a mountain bike. A mountain bike is super forgiving. If you make a wrong turn, you're probably not going to crash. Whereas if you look right or left on a tri bike, you're probably going to go down. So that's exactly what Woodstock's like. He's super twitchy. He's very high performance. And it's like, you're going to get there as fast as possible, but wow you might die. <laughs> so, so that, so, but, but his brain is so fascinating and, and, um, he's super intelligent and I, and I love that I haven't tapped into his brain entirely and learn from him every day. So totally different animal, but yeah, it's like the Ferrari or, or the Ferrari versus the Volkswagen. <laughs> wow. That is so interesting. Right. Oh, There's such dogs are the best. They are. There's no way I could have gotten through all this without without these knuckleheads by my side. So, oh, so when you um, when you see a visually impaired person, uh, or whenever I have, they quite often have um, like a coat on the dog, and it says, "Please don't pat me. I'm I'm working." Along that, you know, those kind yep. of lines, mm-hmm. um, and obviously that's to keep you safe as well. But clearly, um, the relationship between you and the dog just uh, goes way beyond the dog being, you know, an employee. Right, right, exactly. It's, you know, I always laugh because, you know, I'll walk to the grocery store with him and come back and and some lady asked me, uh, does he ever get to play, like, with other dogs? I'm like, no, he works all the time. (laughs) 
I'm like, no, no, I'm kidding. Like the second I come home and I walk in the door because I, I know my space well enough as long as my mother doesn't come to visit and move all my furniture on me again. Um, <laughs> I'm sure your mom does the same thing. Like you, your in-laws come to visit and they're like, they move the knives. You're like, what the hell are the knives? Um, oh God. No, it's your mom just being super funny and just messing with you. I, res- I respect that. <laughs> I think so because she was a housekeeper before and she'll and it like it'll bother her that my coffee table's not exactly, you know, in the right spot in her in her mind. So she'll oh move it smash my knee on it about an hour later. I'll be like, Mom, you moved <laughs> the table again. And she's like, Sorry. I'm like, just stop it. Just just stop. <laughs> like <laughs> stop fixing things. It's not fixing things, it's making things worse. <laughs> oh gosh. Oh, that's funny. Or she'll move like a dress. I had a dress hanging on the back of my bedroom door because I was going to dinner the following night and I was trying to like make sure it was not wrinkled. And she put it back in my closet and I spent like two hours looking for the bloody dress. I was like, where did you put it? Because I had everything color coded so I can find things. And so, oh Lord. She's like, I'm like, it makes sense to the blind person in the family. That's all that matters. Oh, shit. That's so funny. Uh, it's good stuff. Um, okay, last question. Who Thanks. is your favorite famous Amy? I had to think a lot. I was literally thinking about this while I was listening to your to your podcast today with Katie. Um, I think I would say Amy Poehler. Oh, yes. Right? I love her. Mine. She is yes. the greatest. Right? She's fr- she's like the kind of person I want to go like hang out with and or have dinner with because I think, A, my stomach would hurt from laughing so hard, and B, She's also got this like Amy Poehler smart girls. Yep. It's um, amazing. Right. Where she like promotes these in, like amazingly uh, incredible young women that are changing the world and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, donating to charities or, you know, raising money for things. And, and, and uh, actually she featured me like uh, four or five years ago with my guide dog or uh, before Rio, before the last Olympics, my last guide dog. So, um, so she featured me on her uh, Instagram page and I was like, Oh my God, I've made it. Amy Poehler like knows who I am. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I I just think she's super cool. Like I just, I totally want to hang out with her. She, uh, yeah, for every reason you said, she is just one of my favorites. I want her and Tina Fey to just go out to dinner with me. And I just, oh, have you read her book or listened to her book? No. Mate, get on to it. Okay. Amy Poehler. uh, It's called, oh shit, is it called Yes, Please? Or Yes, Thank You. It's either one of those. Okay, I remember. Um, I, yeah, I listened. So I don't get to read books very much these days, but I actually came up with an idea the other day because we've got a cubby house now for Frankie's. So I spent oh, like an hour and a half the other day um, just sitting in the backyard while she just potted around. And I was like, I could actually sit here reading a book. Like, that would be a good opportunity to do that. Um, anyway, that's a tangent. But <laughs> any any book I've read in the past five or ten years has been um listening what do you call them listening to what do you call them audible, audible oh, books or yeah books audible. yeah yeah and her i listened to hers and tina Fey's and amy schumer's and mm-hmm. the fact that they are reading it i was just like this is they're like my best friend in my head at the moment it's the best you've got to do it and please um i'm going to listen to it again actually but i want to hear you um I want to hear your feedback after you've listened to it. I'm going to listen to Tina Fey's too, because like, I love, I, I'm a David Sedaris fan because I love satire. Yep. Um, David Sedaris. I'm trying to think of who else uh, was it. Uh, uh, Burroughs. What was his name? Uh, oh, bloody hell. 
I, I like satire. I like I like funny, you know, funny writers that are sarcastic and and yep. poke fun at themselves and and things like that. And that's that's exactly why I like those kind of women because that's all they do. I'm yep. actually for the election this year because I'm hoping she'll come back on Saturday Night Live and 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 do some really great stuff. Or her and Tina together. Oh my! Well, what everyone's um, just pretty much saying to Maya 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 Rudolph. Um, yes, you need, you need to up your. Uh, yeah, up your charges because um, you're about to be on Saturday Night Live every week uh, playing. Um, now, is it Ka- Kamala? That's what I thought too, but then I was it was Kamala. Kamala. Actually, I saw. Um, kind of like pa- Pamela. Oh, okay. Kamala. Pamela. Kamala. Yes. So I saw Trevor Noah actually. He he put yes. up something. And yeah, and that's where I saw it. That's I was like, that's where I get all my pronunciation uh, yep. from Trevor Noah. <laughs> oh, so good. And I obviously, I'm, I, well, not obviously, but for anyone who knows me, I'm not great with politics. I don't know enough about it, but I'm certainly trying to educate myself a bit better. But what I can say is that is fantastic news from the States uh, having oh. Kamala. Uh, Kamala um, yes. Running as vice president, um, it doesn't, I don't care what party she's running for. I think it's I think it's awesome to have a woman of her background and expertise and oh. ability, and also just her great story. And she brings so much depth to the office. Like it does, like I said, like I don't care if it's Democrat or Republican. I just think she'd be a great person mm-hmm. to have in this period. Fantastic news. Um, super happy. Super, I feel super like happy. I feel like the country and the world needed it, right? Oh my gosh, more more than you can imagine right now. It's it's better here. Like I I I everybody, all my my competitors and friends in Europe are like, do you want to come and stay with and train with us this year until Tokyo happens? I'm like me, if I can get a visa for that long. Oh uh, goodness, yeah. I think I've rented out our spare room, which is actually Frankie's room, so it's not so much spare. But there's a there's a pullout couch in there. But I think I've rented it out to all of my um, US friends. It's bananas, and like, well, and you guys have been having really uh, an oddly warm winter down there. It's been well, yes, yeah, um, in Melbourne. I think like Char- Char- Charlotte McShane, like I've been, I follow her religiously on Insta, and and, and uh, Emma Jeffcoat, obviously, because she's a fellow horse person, and it looks like they're having wonderful uh, winter weather conditions down there. Well, yeah, so they're up in uh, – well, Emma's up in New South Wales now or has been for quite a while, um, which is always a much nicer winter than Melbourne. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, Charlotte was certainly impressive um, staying in Victoria over the most part of the winter and still going out for, for swims. I was super impressed. I caught up with her a few months ago before we went back into lockdown. And, uh, yeah, there's no way I would have been getting into the water. Yeah, you could not pay me to get in the water right now. I mean, the water here right now, I think, is like six. It, it was it was 20, and now it's 16. Um, we got this cold current that came through, and, and we've had a bunch of shark sightings. And I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm perfectly fine in the pool. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. No, pro- no problem. <laughs> it's super uh, short. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, Amy, thank you so much. I'm so happy that we finally got together and had a chat. We've kind of floated the idea past each other for quite a few months. Um, but uh, thank you. You are you are an incredible human being, as is your mother, um, and I'm sure your sister is as well. We didn't even get to talk about her. but um, She's pretty cool. 
I I can only I can only imagine. Um, I am very positive that people will be walking away from this podcast with plenty of things to think about. Plenty of things that have resonated with them. Um, and I cannot thank you enough for sharing your story. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I was like, fa- I've been fangirling for the longest time. It's the the one podcast that I listen to every week because it's like on the, it's, I have my long run or I have my interval run on Mondays. And so usually you, you, I think you drop over the weekends if I'm not mistaken. And so I wait until Monday to listen and, and it gets me through my hard intervals on the treadmill right now. Cause I need to like, I need something funny and uplifting and light and, and, and silly and cool. Like, and to learn all these awesome women that are racing on the circuit all around the world and learn more about them personally. So I, I love it. So I, as a fan girl, I was super excited to come onto the show. Oh, well, thank you. That means a lot as well. We, t- we try to, um, I don't know, I guess cover all bases and make it as, uh, listenable as listenable let's say that that'll do that's a, that's a new word but i like it i'm gonna go with it, go with it. i like it's it like, what, was, what was the accompaniment oh mate accompaniment i cannot oh my god a company mint oh hang on a company a company yeah accompaniment yep exactly accompaniment i feel like i need to throw another i or something in there accompaniment yeah, anyway. Uh, okay. That's the Irish pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. I can, <laughs> I can hear Woodstock salivating in the background at Warnock yes. Sea Fair. Yes. So I I'm going to let you go. It's is, is real right now. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, and we will be chatting to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Steph. Thanks for tuning in. Hit subscribe, give us a rating, leave a comment, and don't forget, if you're not already a Wits Up Patreon member, sign up in the link in the description. But above all else, keep yourselves knee-deep in awesomeness. (laughs) 